Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we heard some good news when it comes to jobs in the pandemic. Texas, Arizona, Idaho, and Utah have recovered all the jobs they lost since the start of the pandemic, and another dozen states could hit that mark by the middle of this year. A lot of this was driven by population growth due to companies and workers shifting away from coastal cities. For more on all this, we'll speak to Brian Mena, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. So the main thing has to do with population growth, which had been which had been going on even before the pandemic in Arizona and Texas, and so uh, that's the main reason there because uh, you know people have been relocating to those places from expensive coastal cities like Los Angeles, New York, and so they go to maybe Phoenix or Dallas, and so people are taking jobs there, and so that drives employment growth. Uh, but there's also um, it also varies by sector and by state as well. For example, in Arizona, transportation and warehousing are growing sectors. And in Texas, the tech has been booming there. You know, we've heard of Oracle, uh, Tesla relocating their headquarters to Austin. So there's definitely um, sectors that have a lot to do with it, but it's not as clear cut. Because, for example, you know, Hawaii is still grappling with lower participation rate, a high unemployment rate. And as we know, Hawaii is relying on tourism, but at the same time, Florida is also relying on tourism as well. And so that economy has been more resilient. So the other factor has to do with pandemic restrictions. And so we we all know that Republican governments are are more resistant to strict measures to mitigate COVID. And so this helps uh, businesses stay open. And so that's another main factor. So you have population growth, less restrictions on businesses. And what's going on with specific sectors. And so that's the overall gist of what's going on in those four states that have already uh, gone through that hurdle. There are a couple of other states that are on the precipice, like Montana and Nebraska. And so the new data comes out this Friday. And so we'll we'll know if more states join that club. A little bit more on the population growth and right and the shifts that is caused there. One of the experts you spoke to said that they expect a third of the states to return to their pre-pandemic levels by the middle of this year. California and states in the Northeast are lagging. So to your point, right, uh, leaving those coastal areas, moving to these other states really helped them out. But now we see these coastal states uh, uh, lagging on on all of this. So Texas and Arizona are growing at the expense of California and New York. And uh, I remember when Oracle announced that it would relocate to uh, Austin, its headquarters, uh, you know, a lot of business owners in Silicon Valley were saying, you know, this is a reckoning, you know, we need to figure out how we can be business friendly because, you know, again, these companies and in addition to that, people are relocating to uh, these other states. And they do this because these states have a lower cost of living. And so uh, that's good for a company's employees, uh, lower cost of living, uh, high quality of life. And so, uh, yeah, those are just some of the reasons why people relocate uh, in addition to the companies. And, you know, despite these states kind of recovering some of those job losses, there's still a ton of job openings out there. And even some of these states are struggling to find workers to fill those spots that are open. Uh, you talk to some people in the restaurant industries out there who we know uh, were taking huge hits throughout the pandemic, but they're still having trouble finding people. Even construction crews are finding it difficult to retain and get more people. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's showing the quit rate. It's more pronounced than others, but overall, a lot of industries are 
dealing with workers quitting. And as you know, uh, workers are quitting for better opportunities. They want better wages. Uh, they want to do remote work. And when people can work remotely, uh, they don't have to live in San Francisco or New York City. Uh, they can move somewhere. And I, I did another story about job openings, uh, how quits ride record highs. And one business owner in New York City told me that you know, uh, shed workers quit and say they're moving to Arizona or Colorado, no notice. And so um, definitely a lot of change of hearts as far as what people want to do as a job and where they want to live. And so uh, we'll, we'll keep seeing more of that throughout this year. Brian Mena, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This week, we also saw Microsoft make a huge deal worth $69 billion to buy video game company Activision Blizzard. While all of this will bolster their game catalog, Microsoft execs see this acquisition as a pathway to the metaverse. The metaverse is so much bigger than gaming, but it will need gamers and first adopters to help it take off. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Right now, there's a lot of hype around the metaverse. We, we saw this in October when Facebook changed its name to Meta Platforms to reflect interest in the metaverse and, and being a leader in it. And we've seen another a number of companies that call themselves metaverse companies and their shares have been rising. And so what we think here is that Microsoft, you know, has a HoloLens, which is an augmented reality system. And the company has a very good stable of, of video games. But with Activision Blizzard, it's acquiring games that are very metaverse-like. They have these games like World of Warcraft have these really rich virtual landscapes and people walk around as avatars and they buy virtual goods. And uh, that's a, a lot a lot like what we can expect of the metaverse. I mean, it's essentially the next evolution of the internet. The belief is that it's going to be so immersive that we'll spend a lot of our time in there and it'll feel like we're meeting up with people really far away, but it'll feel like we're in the same room. And video games are already kind of going down that path. And so Microsoft sees this deal as an opportunity to get closer toward that realization. Yeah, the, the technology and infrastructure that needed for the metaverse to be what, like a fully realized next version of the internet, what everybody's really thinking it's going to be, is still going to take time to develop. We're in that development phase right now. And the metaverse can be so much bigger than just what gaming is. But a lot of experts are saying you're going to need those gamers, you're going to need those people who are already on these virtual worlds to really push that into the next level. Right. I mean, gamers are uh, known to be early adopters of new tech, and they are so comfortable behind a keyboard or a controller. And so um, for them, it's very natural. And getting them sort of used to the idea of uh, spending more time in virtual worlds and becoming uh, having more immersive experiences uh, is sort of a natural fit. And the hope is that they'll help populate the metaverse and start using it for reasons beyond just gaming, perhaps for social reasons or, or see other benefits and then draw their friends into it and, and help it grow. But it, it's, you know, gamers, there are a large bunch of people who play games, but um, there's still, you know, a minority of the global population. So it's hard to say whether or not they will actually help drive adoption of the metaverse, but it's certainly possible. Now, this deal between Microsoft and Activision isn't 100% done. It's going to require some regulatory approval so I guess we still have to wait on that front. Sure. Um, I mean, we, we do know that uh, securities importers have been looking closely at mergers lately, um, especially in tech. So it's possible this one will get some scrutiny as well. But that remains to be seen. I mean, Activision is 
it is a very big game company, but its annual revenue is still a fraction of what the overall games industry does. So I'm not so sure that there'll be um, an antitrust case here, but it is it is a possibility. But with all of this news, we and you mentioned the hype, right? But we're just seeing so many companies putting a lot of time and effort into what the metaverse can be. Even the Microsoft chief said, you know, they don't think there's going to be a single centralized metaverse. They're looking at different platforms, all sorts of places. So there's going to be a lot of different companies working on a lot of different things related to this. Exactly. Um, I mean, the the thought is that just like um, all the businesses we have today at some point develop websites, and then some of them develop e-commerce presence. We can imagine companies doing the same thing in the virtual world. They'll have virtual replicas of their stores or their offices or their schools, or we've already seen virtual replicas of concert venues. And so we'll just, uh, the expectation is for more of that. And it'll take a lot of time to get there, to have the infrastructure built. And then of course, just the onboarding of, of people getting used to using that technology and spending time in these worlds. And like you said, it is the expectation that there'll be multiple metaverses or multiple virtual worlds and uh, interoperability where we'll be able to go from one to the other and bring our same avatar with us when whether we're in one virtual world or another. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Finally for this week, we'll hear a story about a grieving family trying to make connections after the death of their son and found that his biological father had psychiatric problems. His father's hospitalization and condition was not disclosed on a questionnaire that the father filled out when he donated sperm. It turns out donor 1558 had schizophrenia. And later, the Gunner family also had to deal with their son, Stephen, when he also was diagnosed with the same disorder. The Gunners are now using their story to push for legislation to get better disclosures from sperm donors. For more on this, we'll speak to Amy Doxer-Marcus, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. One important thing to point out is that at the time that the donor went to the sperm bank, he had not yet received his diagnosis of schizophrenia. But what he did do is he was required by the sperm bank to fill out a questionnaire where he gave details about his own history with illness and his family's medical history. And one of the questions was, had you ever been hospitalized for any reason? And he answered no. What the gunners found out later was that he had been hospitalized. He had been hospitalized for behavioral issues in a facility, and he hadn't answered that question correctly on the questionnaire. Um, And people don't know why. It's unknown reason why he didn't answer the question correctly. But what the gunners said is that they would have liked the sperm bank to have fact-checked, essentially, the information and independently tried to verify what was provided by the donor. Largely, this stuff is kind of based on the honor system. You fill out your questionnaire, you donate the sperm, and and you're kind of done. They they get paid for it sometimes 100 to 150 bucks for a donation for the donor, but by and large, they don't go back and check everything. They do screen for other illnesses and, and things like that, HIV and other transmissible diseases, but some of this other mental disorder stuff, they don't really go back and look through it. Different sperm banks have different rules because, you know, they're trying to differentiate themselves from each other. They are a consumer business and they're trying to get people to use their services. And certainly some of the checking that gets done now is different than what happened when Stephen was being conceived, you know, over 27 years ago. But overall, 
while it's possible to check some information because donors are required to do blood tests and, and urine tests, things that can be verified, there are aspects of the donor's social and medical history that they take them at their word or they hope that if there's a physician that does a physical exam, that physician will delve into it. But one of the things that the Gunners have done is they have worked with their state senator. They're interested in a bill that would try to get around some of this issue by requiring sperm donors, among others, to give access to their medical records if they want to donate. So that that would require, you know, giving permission to the sperm bank to request their medical records, their visits to their physicians, the drugs that they've been prescribed, so that they could verify independently whatever's provided on the questionnaires. Right. They would have to waive their confidentiality protections at that point, which could be, you know, a sticking point for some, you know, obviously people donate, they want to maintain their anonymity a lot of times. So that would be something that have to be worked out through in the bill. How far along is that? Do we know? It just got introduced. So it's probably not all that far along because yeah. it's, okay. it's just at the very beginning of the process. But, um, you know, the Gunners did share their story with their state senator and he did say that he was moved by it, and he worked with them and with other advocates who are interested in addressing some of these issues through legislation. Tell me a little bit more about the Gunner's son, Stephen, and, and his trajectory, because by all accounts, you know, he was a, a very well-adjusted boy in the beginning. At about age 15, things turned, and then by 19, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yeah, I mean, the Gunners shared with me uh, some of their memories and um, experiences with their son. You know, he was a beloved child and he had a younger sister. He enjoyed music. His parents said that he particularly liked the Beatles. He played sports. He was selected as the captain of the junior high school football team. And by all accounts, he was a social and outgoing, you know, boy. His parents said that they noticed a change in his personality and demeanor around the age of 15. He started to use drugs. He got into trouble at school. He went from being a, you know, an outgoing person with a lot of friends to someone who kept to himself. And it was challenging for them at first to understand whether there was something hugely wrong going on or whether what he was going through was, you know, moodiness and teenage angst. But as the time as time went on, it became apparent that he did have a serious problem because he became addicted to drugs and he he needed a lot of help and intervention, which his parents tried to provide for him. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, that cycle right continues. So he was in and out of rehab and psychiatric hospitals. He was jailed repeatedly. And, you know, unfortunately, things spiraled the wrong way. After he passed, his parents were, you know, grieving, obviously, and wanted to connect with other people if they could. So that's when they made it to the uh, donor sibling registry where they can connect with other donor conceived people, you know, sperm and egg donors, all that. And they found that Stephen had 18 half siblings. So the biological father, I guess he's known as donor 1558. That's how many kids uh, were conceived using his sperm. So this is kind of the other half. This is where they felt a duty to start sharing the story and even let them know about the biological father's uh, schizophrenia. Yeah, and I should point out that the number of children that were conceived using this donor sperm, that's the number that the families themselves were able to identify. 
it's possible that the number may be larger because donor sibling registry a website was created by a mother and her donor conceived son in order to allow different people to connect with one another. And there is a group on that website dedicated to to a subgroup, you know, of people that have gathered on that website who all use this particular donor, the same one that Stephen's parents had used. And so they share information with one another. And initially, what I think the gunner's impulse was, was that they knew that schizophrenia can run in families, and they wanted to share his health information with his half-siblings or the parents of his half-siblings in order to give them some important medical information that they might not have. But in the course of meeting some of those families, they learned that one of the parents on the site had had her child do a home DNA test. And through that test, her child was able to connect with the child's biological relatives, which included the sperm donor's parents. And that's how they learned more information about the sperm donor's history that they hadn't known from the questionnaires that they were able to read that he had supplied to the sperm bank. Well, like you said, you know, the donor's uh, schizophrenia diagnosis didn't come until after he had donated the sperm. So, uh, I mean, that's obviously unfortunate timing there. He did not put his hospitalization on the questionnaire there. So the gunners, you know, obviously, you know, really concerned, really angry about this also. But, you know, so what do we know about the connections of schizophrenia from parents to children? There is an increase in percentage that they that they could come down with it. Although, I, you know, some of the experts you did speak to say, by and large, they don't come down with it. But there is an increased risk, at least. Yes, that's very true. I mean, the estimate, and these are approximate estimates, but the estimate of um, the disorder in the general population is around 1%. And the scientists that I spoke with said, if you have a parent that has the disorder, your risk of developing the disorder is around 10%. So that is a significant increase over what you might have um, if you didn't have um, a parent with the disorder. But as one of the doctors that I interviewed said, if you do have a parent that has schizophrenia, you're more likely not to develop it than you are to develop it. But having said that, there's been an increase in studies in recent years where they're trying to sort of unlock what they call the black box of schizophrenia, and they're trying to understand the genetic component of the disease. They've identified hundreds of gene variants that collectively working together may give you a kind of genetic nudge or shove towards developing the disorder, but they're still trying to work out more how that works and what the interaction might be between your genetic predisposition to this disorder and environmental factors, because they've also identified some environmental risk factors that may also, either individually or in concert with your genetic predisposition, increase your risk of developing schizophrenia. It's still an emerging science. They're still working to figure this all out. Amy Dr. Marcus, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal, Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.